Our Old Covenant reading this evening is from Genesis 50, toward the end of the book of Genesis. We'll be reading verses 15 through 21 this evening. This is the word of the Lord. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here ends our Old Covenant reading. Our New Covenant reading is from Paul's letter to Philemon. We're We'll be focusing this evening's sermon on verses 14 through 16. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 16 for context. This is the word of our God. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." Last time we looked at these verses together, we began to see in verses 8 through 13 the way that Christian love leads to gospel living. What's happening here in this letter to Philemon, right? Paul has begun uh, the first seven verses with basically an introduction, giving thanks to God for Philemon, for his willingness to love God and to love the brothers. Uh, But now in verses 8 and following, Paul is calling Philemon to Christ-likeness. Philemon is being called to be like Christ as he graciously forgives the one who has sinned against him and seeks reconciliation and restoration. And and Paul himself, right, he's not just saying, Philemon, this is what you need to do. Paul himself is setting the example of Christ-likeness for Philemon as he, Paul, does the work of reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul is doing the work of bringing enemies back together and making them friends. Now, we looked a little bit at how there are a lot of things that 
would seek to pull Philemon away from loving and forgiving Onesimus, right? What would Philemon's other slaves think? What would the other slave owners that Philemon associates with, what would they think? You know, like Philemon's reputation is on the line here. How is he going to demonstrate Christ-likeness in the middle of this difficult situation? And the answer to that is that Philemon is called to display Christian love. Paul could have commanded Philemon to do what was right, but instead he appeals to love. That is, he appeals to Philemon's love for God and love for God's people. It is Christian love that leads us to, first, willing obedience, second, gospel usefulness, third, doing the good, and fourth, loving the beloved. Now, so last time we looked at the first two, right? We looked at the way that Christian love leads to willing obedience and gospel usefulness. God has saved us by his grace in Christ through the Spirit. And our response to that grace is to be one of love. And and it is that love for God, because of what he has done, that leads us to willingly and joyfully desire to obey him. Love leads to action. It doesn't do any good if you tell someone that you love them and you never do anything for them. We also saw that an important aspect of this love in action is gospel usefulness. Uh, Onesimus had once been a useless slave, but now he is useful not just as a slave, but also as a minister of the gospel. In fact, it's actually quite interesting that this Onesimus that we meet here in this letter to Philemon, uh, it seems quite possible that he is the Onesimus mentioned by Ignatius, Um, that this Onesimus mentioned by Ignatius was a one who became a bishop of Ephesus. And so it seems very likely that Onesimus went from being a runaway slave to a leader in the early church. Onesimus goes from being useless to being useful. He is useful in his service to Philemon, but more than that, he is useful in his service to God. But Paul's not primarily concerned with Onesimus' usefulness, right? He's concerned with Philemon's usefulness. He wants Philemon to be useful for gospel ministry. He wants Philemon to join him in gospel ministry by supporting him through the work of Onesimus. Philemon's love for God, his love for God's people, his love for Paul, and yes, the love that he is now to display toward Onesimus, It is that love that will make him useful for the work of the kingdom. And so Christian love leads to willing obedience and it leads to gospel usefulness. But that leads us to the last two points, which we're going to look at together this evening. And that is this. Christian love leads to doing the good and loving the beloved. Doing the good and loving the beloved. So we're going to look at those last two points this evening. Let's look first at how Christian love leads to doing the good. Look with me again here at verses 13 through 14. Paul writes this, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now, I want to draw your attention to um, the New King James Version here of verse 14. I think it's a, just a little bit better of a translation. It says this, 
but without your consent I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion as it were but voluntary so the difference here is is that the ESV uses the word goodness where the New King James goes for good deed. And I think good deed is actually a little bit better of a way of getting at what Paul is talking about here in this verse. Paul is, is very clearly telling Philemon that forgiving Onesimus is the good thing to do. And he wants Philemon to willingly agree to do this good thing. Now what's interesting is that throughout this letter, Paul expresses confidence that Philemon will do what is right, and what is good. Willing obedience is a fruit of having grasped the grace of the gospel in our own lives. And Philemon had grasped that grace. So Paul is calling him to the willing obedience that comes with grasping that grace. And that willing obedience is meant to produce good works in our lives. The thing is here, Paul isn't merely interested in Onesimus being released from slavery. I think it does become clear that that is what he wants, but that's not the only thing he's interested in, right? Paul is interested in having Onesimus come and join him in the work of gospel ministry. Philemon doing the good thing is not just about freeing a slave. I think that's actually important because if that was the only thing Paul was driving at, Philemon, you got to release your slave. He would have said for Philemon to re- release all the rest of his slaves, right? That's not the only thing that Paul is driving at. The good thing that Philemon to do is also about forgiving a brother, participating with that brother and the Apostle Paul in the work of gospel ministry. And also it's important to notice Paul isn't just after Philemon doing good things for other people. He wants that to happen, but he is also after Philemon's own good. He's leading him toward the good, toward willing obedience to God. That brings blessing. Because God loves a cheerful giver, and that's what Paul wants for Philemon. Now, because we want to strongly affirm that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and we must strongly affirm that, but because we want to do that, sometimes we're a little bit shy of talking about good works. Good works get abused all the time, right? Um, They're often presented as ways of earning righteousness from God, ways of earning merit and favor. Um, you know, the Roman Catholic Church does this, right? There's like a, a treasury of merit. You can, you can build up good works, and if you've got leftovers, you put it in there. Well, most of us don't, but like, you know, Paul and Mary and stuff did, and we can go get some of that. Uh, that's obviously, we're not thinking of that as the way that good works function in the life of the believer. But sometimes because we've seen that abuse, we're a little bit afraid to talk about good works in our own lives. The best solution to that is simply to realize that Jesus talked about good works. And in keeping with the plain teaching of Jesus, Paul talked about good works. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 10, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And then, of course, the book of James, right? We've been going through James in our morning uh, services. James very plainly tells us that faith apart from works is useless. We, we don't have to shy away from talking about and pursuing good works in our lives. I think the important thing for us to understand is how to put good works in their proper perspective in the Christian life. See, in justification, God declares us righteous. He reckons us, he reckons all our sin to Christ's account, and he reckons Christ's righteousness, both his active and passive righteousness, to our account. In other words, Christ lives the life that we could not live, and he dies the death that we could not die. And on the basis of that, on the basis of Christ's work, God looks at us and he says, not guilty. That's justification, and it's all of grace. We do nothing to receive that declaration from God that says you are not guilty. We receive that by faith in Christ alone. Well, then in sanctification, God in Christ through the Spirit actually pours holiness into us. Stop and think about that for a minute. He actually not only declares us righteous and holy, he makes us righteous and holy. But see, this pouring holiness into us in sanctification is not the reason for our justification. It's the result of our justification. Because God has made us his children by grace, he chooses by grace to make us inwardly righteous and holy. Sanctification is God working in us to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. In Ephesians 4.24, Paul tells us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Good works are the natural response of God's work of sanctification in us. Good works flow out of us as we take hold of our sanctification by faith. To put it a little bit differently, sanctification is the source from which all good works flow. The scripture tells us plainly and calls us to actively participate by faith in the work of sanctification that God is doing in us by grace. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So our good works do not create holiness within us, but they do promote growth and progress in the holiness that God is working in us by the Spirit. Now, we do have to ask ourselves, what are good works, right? Like, if good works are the natural response of Understanding that we are saved by grace alone and we are being made righteous in the process of sanctification as God works holiness in us. What are those good works? What are those things that we are called to do that we might grow and progress in holiness? I think the confession is most helpful here when it says, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. In other words, only the things that God commands us to do in his word, either explicitly or implicitly, only those things are good works. Um, You know, another example of this, I guess this is kind of an obvious example, But the Roman Catholic Church has made 
celibacy a good work, right? It's a, it's a higher form of obedience by which man can please God. Now, the obvious problem with that is the idea that you know, celibacy is not commanded or required by the word of God. God commands, the command of God in relation to marriage or singleness is that God commands the married to remain faithful to their spouses in every way. And he commands the unmarried to remain pure and keep themselves from sexual sin. So faithfulness and purity in marriage and in singleness, that is a good work because that is commanded by God. But celibacy itself is not a good work because that's not what God requires. Now, that's just an example, right? But I think you can see there are many ways to do this to take man-made rules that God does not require and set them up as good works that believers ought to do. I think you can all sit there and think of a couple that you've experienced in your own life where people have said, well, this is a better way of obeying God, but it's not commanded by God. If God does not command it, either explicitly or implicitly, then it is not a good work that helps us in our progress towards sanctification. Now, that leads us to another question, because you may have been thinking to yourself, okay, well, things like marriage, uh, faithfulness in marriage, like, unbelievers can do that too. So do they do good works? Can unbelievers do things that are pleasing to God? Again, the confession is helpful here. It says, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter... Of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God. Or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. Only when the heart is transformed by grace. And the believer delights in the law of God and desires to obey it out of love for God. Then and only then is obedience to the law of God a good work. Good works flow from faith. They conform to the law of God, and they are done for the glory of God. And thus only believers can do good works in the sight of God. The reason it's important to realize this is that we are those whose hearts and minds have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are, in fact, capable of of good works that please and glorify God. Again, not to earn righteousness before God, not to in some way change our standing before God, but to worship Him, to love Him, to grow in the process of sanctification that He is desiring to carry us along. Apart from Christ, we can never do good works. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If we are children of God, then Christ, in fact, dwells in us by the Spirit and empowers us to do that which is pleasing to God. I think this is at the same time liberating and sobering. 
It's liberating because Christ is at work in us, enabling us to obey God as he has commanded us in scriptures. We don't have to do this on our own, right? God didn't say, well, I saved you and now you're on your own for your sanctification. It doesn't work like that. God's grace is poured out on us in justification and in sanctification. God is the one working in us. And as we come to the law of God to see what it is that pleases God that we are to do, the law of God no longer condemns us. Rather, it shows us how we might live in a way pleasing to God out of love for him. The word of God requires good works from you, and it also equips you to do every good work. And it also works in you the delight and the desire to do every good work something liberating about it, but it's also sobering. And it's sobering because when we examine our lives honestly, we realize just how much we are lacking in good works. We heard in this morning's sermon how we're called to walk in love and obedience today. Right? You're not called to do this in the future. There, there isn't really a future for walking in love and obedience, it's, it's always today. You have to do it today. But here's the thing. God in his wisdom and kindness presents you each day with opportunities for good works. He is in the business of sanctifying his people. He is in the business of making us more like Christ, leading us by the hand toward more and more obedience to him. And that's what God is doing in Philemon's life here. He's giving him an opportunity to grow in grace, and he is leading him by the hand through the ministry of Paul to do the good work that God requires of him. Ask yourself this question. What opportunities for good works has God put into my life? What opportunities has God given me to love him? To worship him in my words and in my actions? Is it growing in love for God? Is it growing in love for God's people? Is it growing in forgiveness, in patience, purity, joy, contentment, humility, reliance on God, kindness in actions and in speech? What is it that God is working in your life and presenting you with opportunities to do? The thing about this is God doesn't only give us opportunities for good works in the areas where we are strong. I think we would like that, you know. Uh, God, I'm, I'm actually really strong at serving people. Couldn't I have opportunities to do that? You know, and God's giving you opportunities for humility. And it's, oh, I'm not good at humility, God. Maybe I could just have the other ones that I'm good at, you know. feels like that sometimes. God doesn't always give us only the things that we're good at or the things that we like to do, right? Philemon is strong in faith. He is strong in loving God and loving the people of God. But God wants him to grow. He wants us to grow in areas where we are strong and in areas where we are weak. And sometimes it's going to be hard. That's what Philemon was experiencing. God is leading us by the hand toward good works that we might please him and that he might be glorified and that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. See, God's agenda is 
God's agenda is an agenda of eternal significance. Now, so that you might not become discouraged. (laughs) Think about that, right? Sometimes it's a little bit discouraging to think, man, I don't do the things that God has called me to do sometimes. But so that we might not become discouraged, growing in good works often takes baby steps. And Calvin reminds us that none of us runs swiftly along this path of sanctification because of the sin that remains within us. We, we might be limping along or even crawling on the ground, but, but Calvin says our efforts aren't in vain when we are further along today than yesterday. We aren't trying to earn favor with God. Christ has already won that for us. Rather, in response to grace, we display our love for him. We seek to glorify him by walking each day in new obedience. Yes, even crawling each day in new obedience. Don't ignore the opportunities for good works that God has brought into your life. God is using them for your good to help you progress in sanctification. And he is using them for his glory. That he might be glorified in you. That men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? It's, it's not about us drawing attention to ourselves or, or even feeling like we're good people. It's not about that. It's about bringing honor and glory to the one who saved us by his grace. So that when people see us, they don't say, that's a really good person. They say, I want to know who that person worships. Who their God is. I want to know why they keep talking about Jesus and what that does in their life. We spent a lot of time here looking at how Christian love leads to doing good works, and we come now finally, and more briefly, to loving the beloved. Christian love leads to willing obedience, gospel usefulness, doing the good, and finally, loving the beloved. Look with me here at verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is pointing to God's providence even in this bad circumstance. God can take even our sin and turn it around for his glory. That is what he is in the business of doing. See, when Onesimus ran away from Philemon, that wasn't a little thing that happened. Philemon suffered significant loss. This was a bad circumstance. He had been wronged. He had been sinned against. He had lost out significantly, probably in a monetary way. And Paul is saying, Philemon, you remember that bad thing that happened? God is working it out for good. An example of this is what we looked at in our Old Covenant reading, the story of Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. They sinned against him. They harmed him. They betrayed him, their own flesh and blood. They should have protected him. They should have been their brother's keeper, but they refused to be. Instead, they tried to get rid of him, and they didn't care if he died along the way. But God worked that bad circumstance out to save Egypt and the surrounding area. And the family of Jacob. 
God used that to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the people of Israel might grow and thrive, even as God had promised. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, understanding God's providence led Joseph to see what had happened from God's perspective. It didn't take away the sin of his brothers, right? That that sin still happened, and it still hurt. But understanding God's providence allowed Joseph to forgive his brothers. And the same was supposed to be true of Philemon. When Onesimus ran away, he hurt Philemon, probably in more than one way. He meant it for evil. He meant to harm Philemon. But God meant it for good. The knowledge of God's providence, as Philemon understands this, right? It didn't undo Onesimus' sin. Onesimus still has to come back and repent and seek forgiveness. But Paul is arguing that Philemon understanding what God is doing should lead him to forgiveness. Onesimus' heart has been changed by what has happened. Even if he had remained with Philemon, if his heart had never changed, he would not have been a useful slave. But his leaving has turned out for good in a way that no one could have expected. His sins separated him from Philemon for a time, but God has worked it out that they might be united together forever. Not just as master and slave, because that did happen, but as brother and brother. They are brothers in Christ. They are united together as the people of God for all eternity. Philemon had lost Onesimus for a short while, but the advantage that he receives from this circumstance is lasting. He has received a faithful slave, one who is willing to work to glorify God in all that he does. In Colossians 3, verses 22 through the beginning of chapter 4, Paul tells slaves to work faithfully, For their heavenly masters, as if they are working for the Lord. And he tells masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly, because they themselves are slaves of Christ. Now, think about Paul's Paul's saying this to slaves, and he's saying it to masters, with the possibility that, you know, one is a believer and one is not. And so you have to be faithful to God either way. But how much more when both of them are believers? How much more when they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Philemon is now Philemon and Onesimus together are beloved brothers in Christ. I I think Philemon may have been tempted to view Onesimus as a slave in the flesh but a brother in Christ. Okay, like I'm your brother in Christ but you're still my slave Onesimus. And Paul says to him both in the flesh and in the Lord. Onesimus is a brother, in the flesh and in the Lord. So this reality affected the way that Christian masters and slaves related to each other, and this shows the bond that we have together in Christ. We can only see one another as brothers and sisters. There's a lot of talk, and we don't have to go into this, obviously, but there's a lot of talk going around about social justice even in the church. And 
Okay, maybe we should have that conversation. But I think what's being forgotten in the midst of these conversations is that we are brothers and sisters. We are speaking to one another as brothers and sisters. We are to treat one another as brothers and sisters, as those for whom Christ died. Jesus died for you, and Jesus died for me. And because of that, we are united together, and nothing can change that. We have equal standing before God. Imagine what that must have been like for Philemon to hear that, where Paul is basically saying to him, Philemon, Onesimus is an equal. Think about how radical that was. What is happening here is this. Onesimus may be a slave of Philemon. He may be an offender, but Paul is pointing Philemon to a more glorious reality that Onesimus is one who is loved by God. He is the beloved. And that changes everything. Calvin says this, it would be excessive pride if we should be ashamed of acknowledging as our brother those whom God accounts his son. About what that would be like. Where God says, That is my son. That is my daughter. How shameful would it be for us to treat them any other way? Not only is Philemon called to forgive Onesimus, he is called to love him. He's called to love him because Onesimus is the beloved of God. In Jesus Christ, you are loved by God. In Jesus Christ, your brothers and your sisters in Christ are loved by God. Look around at each other. You know, sit down in church sometime and really, so like when you're, me and Pastor Booth have a bit of an advantage. We get to stand up here and look out at all of you and it's really a wonderful thing. Um, I really enjoy it. Uh, You don't get that same advantage. So look around sometime and realize that those sitting next to you are those for whom Christ died. Each and every one of you has put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are united to Christ. And your brothers and your sisters, they are united to Christ. We are all the beloved. God took what was evil and he turned it around for good. That these two men would come to see that they are brothers in Christ. That they are the beloved of God. And as such, how can they do anything other than love each other? Obviously, that is more difficult when you are the one who has been offended. I'm sure that was hard for Philemon. But you cannot withhold love from someone who is loved by God. Because you, just like them, are a redeemed sinner. I think that this is powerfully presented to us at the Lord's Supper. In the supper, Christ himself comes and ministers grace to you. And again, look around at your brothers and your sisters who each take the wine and the bread from the tray and recognize Christ is ministering grace to them. Right? We, we, we had Judah's baptism this morning. What does that show us? Christ is ministering grace to Judah. He is a brother to all of us. Can you harbor hatred or anger in your heart against one who is united to you in Christ? Can you who have been forgiven an enormous debt, a debt that you could never pay, 
can you hold against a fellow believer the very small debt that they owe you? Because let's face it, when someone has sinned against us, that little sin, like sometimes we treat it like it's, you know, the worst possible thing that could ever happen. But it's very small in comparison to our sin against a holy God. We have been forgiven that great debt. You can't withhold love from those for whom Christ died. It's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to love those who return the love that we show them. But anyone can do that. Remember, Jesus said even unbelievers can do that. We as the children of God are called to a different kind of love. In Luke chapter 6, our Lord Jesus says these words, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Amen.